Our night skies are so beautiful, filled with the stars. If we're lucky, we can trace the constellations. And if we are very lucky, we can trace the flight of the bats chasing our dear friends, the mosquitoes. I'm pleased to introduce a guest from Bat World, Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Our guest is Kate Gordon, who's a vice president of special projects. Kate, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Kate, please tell us a little bit more about your work with Bat World. Tell us a great deal about Bat World. Bat World Sanctuary was founded more than 25 years ago now by a woman by the name of Amanda Lawler. She's still our president, founder, CEO, and person with all the knowledge about bats. She found a small bat on the sidewalk in Mineral Wells, Texas on a hot summer day, and the bat was injured. She didn't want it to suffer, so she scooped it up and took it home, discovered that there really wasn't a whole lot of information available in the library, and this is, of course, pre-internet days. So she did the best she could to care for it. It was not able to fly because of an injury, so it lived with her for about two years. She named it Sunshine and wrote a book about it called The Bat in My Pocket, which was quite a popular book, out of print now, but I'm fortunate enough to actually have a copy of it. That was the beginning of Bat World. She became absolutely fascinated with bats, fell in love with them, and was really shocked by the lack of information about bats that was available for people who might be inclined to try to take care of them. She has since, of course, obtained all the necessary permits to care for a bat because it is illegal to possess them without permits. And she has written the definitive book on captive management of insectivorous bats, which is the it's the gold standard around the world for people who are rehabilitating bats or are working with them in an institutional setting like a zoo or a research facility. 25 plus years later, Bat World Sanctuary is the only facility in the world that is dedicated exclusively to rescue and rehabilitation of insectivorous bats that are native and providing lifetime sanctuary to both native non-releasable bats and non-native bats that are surrendered out of zoos, research facilities, or um, the pet trade. So fruit bats come under that category or insectivorous bats come in as people find them. And then if they're releasable, we let them back loose once they've recovered. If they're not releasable, then we have licenses to keep them and give them a permanent home. She's written a number of scientific articles about bats. She is consulted by researchers and veterinarians from around the world. And we provide continuing education and professional development training for bat rehabilitators, researchers, veterinarians, biologists, from across the globe. Kate, what's the life cycle of a bat? The gestation period? How long do they typically live? Is it true between the insect-eating bats and the fruit-eating? Insect-eating bats generally have a much shorter gestation than the fruit-eating bats. Typically, it runs around 90 days, but it depends very much on the species and there are a large number of species of bats. They may have anywhere from a single pup, like our Mexican free-tail bat, which is the state bat here in Texas, 
up to as many as five at a time, which would be our eastern red bats that are a solitary tree roosting bat. They only give birth once a year, and they are the slowest reproducing mammals of their size on the planet. Fruit bats, on the other hand, tend to have a longer gestation period. Most of them have a single pup. There rarely are uh, multiples in a birthing, and they have a the life expectancy ranges anywhere from about six to eight years for some of our microbats that live in trees up to 40 or more years, depending again on the species. We actually have the world's oldest living captive giant flying fox at Bat World Sanctuary. He is 33 years old now. And the normal life expectancy for those bats, even in captivity, is less than 30. That's remarkable. What's attributing to that long life? His excellent care. He came to Bat World out of a situation that was not particularly good. He he actually was born in captivity. We have all the records dating back to when he was born. But since coming to Bat World several years ago now, he has really flourished. And even though we're seeing old age declines in him, he has arthritis and um, he has some other age-related infirmities. He's still very active. He loves the care that he gets. He's taken out for daily sunbathing time so that he gets some fresh air and sunshine outside. Um, he's hand-flown. He cannot any longer fly independently, but he's held and allowed to flap his wings so he feels like he's flying. And, of course, he gets a, a really excellent diet with a variety of fruits and supplements to ensure that he's healthy. We have plenty of time to follow up on some science. I do, though, want to get into some folklore. When I'm in the backyard with my short hair, I have to be terribly afraid a bat's going to get into my hair and pull me away. No, regardless of whether you are completely bald or have the world's tallest beehive, bats have no interest in getting into your hair. If you are outside and a bat swoops down over your head, that bat is actually doing you a favor. Because if you look up when you go outside, particularly on a warm summer evening, you see this cloud of little teeny flying insects up above your head. And that's because we radiate heat from our head and that attracts those insects. The insects are what attracts the bat and the bat is flying through, grabbing a mouthful of bugs and protecting you from them on its way by. Okay, so we should invite a hothead to all of our, Absolutely. All of our evening Absolutely. parties. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, because then they, all the mosquitoes will flock to them and the bats will go eat all the mosquitoes and you all will be fine. Good. We could actually end the interview at this point. <laughs> okay. I think everybody's learned as much <laughs> as they need. <laughs> Oh, we've only just scratched the surface with bats, though. On the other extreme, when I vacation in Transylvania, should I take, um, I don't know, some sort of, like, garlic with me? Well, you might want to use it to season your food, but there's no other reason to take garlic Transylvania. They actually probably have some there, but they also don't have any vampire bats. Contrary to what we see in the productions from Hollywood, Transylvania is not the home to the vampire bat. Vampire bats really don't care about garlic, holy water, silver, crosses, sunlight, or mirrors. They don't sleep in coffins filled with dirt during the day, um, and they really don't like the way people taste. There are three species of vampire bats in the world, and only three. They live in Central and South America. They feed on animal blood, primarily goats, cows, chickens, pigs, and they are about the size of a hamster. 
you've dispelled way too many myths. Just, I mean, you're, it's just amazing. I'm so sorry. Now, let's discuss the anatomy and physiology of this wonderful mammal. Okay. Bats have a, the Latin name for the, the general classification of bats is Choroptera, which translates literally to hand wing. And if you look at the anatomy of a bat, first of all, the skeletal structure bears a striking resemblance to a human skeleton, except that the limbs and particularly the fingers are considerably longer. Um, the wing itself consists of a shoulder, an upper arm or humerus, an elbow, a forearm or radius, a wrist, and a thumb and four fingers. And when the wing is fully extended, it looks like a hand. There's a membrane that extends from the top surface of the outermost finger all the way down to the side of the body, and it encases all four fingers. The fingers are jointed so that the bat can move the fingers as part of its flight activity. And they are the only mammal that's capable of true powered flight. They don't glide like a bird they flap continuously while they are flying and their wings are extremely flexible as a result. The, the membrane is two very thin layers of skin with nerves and blood vessels and so forth sandwiched in between along with the finger bones. Very good. On the physiology end, is there anything special about their organs and how everything works inside the animal? They are uniquely suited to life upside down. So although their organs are in roughly the same place as ours are, they are um, more efficient when they are roosting, hanging head down. They breathe better. Their heart rate is better. They actually digest food upside down. The only time they turn head up is to either eliminate or if it's a female giving birth. And then she'll use her tail membrane to catch the baby as it comes out. They, they are mammals. They do produce milk, and the pups will crawl up onto the mother's upper abdomen and chest to find a nipple and latch on. And then she'll usually carry that baby with her wherever she goes until it's old enough to fend for itself. That's amazing. How long might that be? It can vary from as little as about four weeks to as much as eight to ten weeks. Our eastern red bats usually have a pretty hard time of it because with up to five pups, by the time the babies are big enough for her to safely leave them when she goes out foraging, they are almost as big as she is. The collective birth weight of the pups is between 25 and 30 percent of the mother's weight, so if we look at that in human terms, that's a 120-pound woman giving birth to a 30- to 40-pound infant. Kate, what is it about the bat's mouth, the teeth? There, there must be something that's unique. They're designed for, in insectivorous bats, puncturing the outer shell of an insect so that they can get at the good part, which is the insides. Um, they have the same kinds of teeth that we do. They have incisors, canines, premolars, and molars. And for as tiny as they are, um, they have about the same number of teeth that we do. Most bat species have between 30 and 32 teeth. They are very sharp. They're very tiny. They're particularly the canines are rather needle-like, needle so they can puncture that carapace on the insect. Fruit bats tend to have bigger teeth, 
and more molars for grinding because they're eating fruit that's pulpy and, and a little tougher to eat. But an, from an anatomical structure standpoint, they actually look very much like human teeth. The difference between the fruit-eating and the insect-eating bat is, I think, a large difference. It encompasses the, the size of the cranium and the eye orbit. Yes. Fruit bats have a larger skull, generally. Um, depending on the species, of course, there are some really tiny fruit bats as well. But the, the muzzle is elongated, which gives them more ability to get at the nectar of fruits and also some pollens. The eye orbit is larger, with the exception of the Egyptian fruit bat. Fruit bats are not known to echolocate because their food isn't moving and they're more visually oriented. Our um, insect-eating bats see primary colors and neutral tones, blacks, grays, and whites. Fruit bats, on the other hand, see in full-spectrum color, and they can actually pick up subtle variations in color tone that we cannot see. And that helps them to determine whether or not the fruit that they're picking at or looking at is ripe enough to eat. They're not going after the fruit that's ready to go to market in a in a farm situation or an orchard. They're looking for the fruit that didn't make it to market when it was ready and is now too ripe to go. And that's what they will prefer to eat. That also helps the fruit farmer by preventing fruit fly infestations. Is it just the fruit-eating bat that's responsible for contributing to pollination? No, some insectivorous bats do as well. They're more incidental pollinators rather than deliberate because they don't typically feed on pollen and nectar. But they do sometimes glean insects off of plants and they'll pick up pollen on their way by. Are all of the bats nocturnal? Yes, the fruit bats are somewhat more active during the day, but they tend to do all their foraging at night. Their eyesight is geared toward night vision, so they generally will sleep during the day, and then they're more active at night. The insectivorous bats are exclusively nocturnal. Echolocation, that's such an intriguing ability of the bat. Let's explore that. Echolocation, it really is a fascinating concept, there was some work done in Canada, and it's more than 20 years ago now, I think there was a young man who lost both of his eyes to cancer at the age of three, and he taught himself to echolocate and then allowed researchers to connect up a lot of equipment to his head while he was echolocating to figure out what that brain path looks like. And even though it's an, um, in his case, it was audible, in our case, for bats, it's outside of our range of hearing, but it's still a sound that's emitted that bounces off of the target. When the response tone comes back, it goes in through the ears, but the part of the brain that processes it is the visual cortex. So there's like a map inside their head of what they're targeting. And when a bat is flying and hunting at night, if you think about how they feed, we're talking about an animal that is flying between several hundred and several thousand feet up in the sky in full dark, going as much as 60 miles an hour, chasing an insect that's not, in a lot of cases, much bigger than an eyelash. That's not something that even the sharpest-eyed predator is going to be able to see with their eyes. So echolocation allows them to precisely target that insect through sound waves and catch it and eat it. What a successful strategy. 
It really is. And we've learned a tremendous amount from watching how bats echolocate. The Doppler radar systems that we use today to track severe storms are based on bats echolocation. Fascinating. So the animal has the ability to perform echolocation, and scientists study, understand that, and take it into meteorology. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there examples of the humans adopting the talents of the bats? There's a lot of work being done in studying the mechanics of bat flight with the intent that we would use that knowledge to develop aircraft that are more agile. Well, there's a lot that we can learn from bats about not only flight and echolocation, but immunology, uh, longevity, because of their lifespan. We, we can't begin to understand at this point how some of these bats live as long as they do, given their size and their lifestyle. For example, the little brown bat, which is has been up until recently fairly common in the northern part of the country, has a life expectancy of more than 40 years in the wild. And those bats only weigh, on average, about eight or nine grams as an adult. And to put that in in the terms that I use for school kids, a craft single slice of cheese weighs one ounce, which is 28 grams. So this little brown bat, who can live to be 40 years old, weighs approximately a third of a slice of cheese. You mentioned that you'll try to educate school-age students. What are some common questions? The most common question I get is, why bats? Because I could work with kittens or puppies or bunnies because they're cute and fuzzy and everybody loves kittens and puppies and bunnies. And I respond to that with a question back, and I'm going to challenge you with this. If you met somebody today who had never seen a bat, knew absolutely nothing about bats, and you had to tell them everything they needed to know about bats using just one word, what word would you pick? Unique. Okay. Is that everything they need to know? You asked for one word. <laughs> I said one word that tells them everything they need to know about bats. Kate, you're driving me batty. <laughs> That's my job. Please help me. The word that I use to describe bats is essential. And the reason that I choose to use that word is because bats affect human life in almost everything we do. Bats are responsible for consuming millions and millions of harmful night-flying insects every single year. They protect important crops like corn, cotton, uh, most of our grain crops. Um, they're responsible for pollinating the agave plants. Um, they're important for avocados, almonds, uh, bananas, mangoes, a lot of the fruits and vegetables and grains that we enjoy on our table every single day are either protected or propagated by bats. And if we don't have bats, we don't have those things. Um, imagine not being able to wear anything that wasn't polyester. Um, imagine a loaf of bread costing 15 or $20 instead of two or three. Um, imagine 
not being able to have bananas or mangoes. Um, if you're inclined to, you know, patio parties and you like to serve um, margaritas and um, tortilla chips with guacamole, you might as well cancel the party if we don't have bats. If we don't have bats, we will not have the abundance of coffee and chocolate that we have today, which in my view makes life not worth living. Um, bats bring us products like shampoo and conditioner, toothpaste, soap, uh, products that we use every single day to keep ourselves clean. Um, they bring us chewing gum and twine and the rubber for tires and the soles of our tennis shoes. They bring us over a hundred different medicines that save lives. If we don't have bats, people die. And that's the bottom line. And so bats are truly essential to human life.